Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. We've got two authors today who have both returned exactly. and numerous times. They want to talk to us. They do. We're privileged. And it's always good to have authors return. And David Francis has done just that with each of his novels. So welcome back, David. Good to see you both this time. Oh, yes, we're growing. Um, Daniel Rawson, he's the main character in this book, and he's a little like you. He's a lawyer in America, but grew up in Australia and still has family here. Daniel's family have land in Gippsland. There's a cottage where his grandmother used to be and the big house with verandas and it's so grand that it was even used in a movie set. To get to them, you drive down Wedding Bush Road. Now, it sounds ideal, but you can tell us what were the circumstances that required Daniel to come home? Well, the novel Wedding Bush Road uh, began as a short story that was based on uh, a return to a family for a Christmas. So Daniel Rawson is living up in Laurel Canyon with his fairly glamorous girlfriend who's a little bit above his fighting weight. What's that expression when you're boxing? Um, punching <laughs> above weight. Your, punching, punching above your weight. weight. Yeah, punching above your weight. There it is. And uh, so he returns because his mother has called and some weird stuff has happened and his mother is ill. And what has happened is that there's a woman in this cottage on the property that his father has ensconced there who has become disappointed one way or another with the father's behavior and has put all the valuables from that cottage who are his his grandmother's mm. stuff that came out from England, put them on this old Mitsubishi that's out in the paddock and burnt them all, including his rocking horse that he had as a kid. So why would Sharon be so revengeful? I think it may be something to do with uh, the odd relationship that the father has with her. So the father has the mother in the big house and his girlfriend in a place that's called Bitter Snug in the in the novel, and and then this woman in the in the cottage and the ex mistress, really, perhaps the ex mistress. Yes, mm. and things haven't gone well. But then again, the Sharon has also been very helpful to Ruthie, the mother that that's had the stroke mm. in the big house. So, yes. So Sharon is uh, this woman who's appeared from we're not sure where, uh, but she has also engaged with the mother and been very helpful and supportive with the, the old mother who lives in the big house on her own as and has kind of... Weaseled her way in there as well. Weaseled her way in, but there's also somebody looking after Sharon, uh, looking after Ruthie, the old woman, and basically from a tree. Well, sometimes from a tree, but also from he lives up in the roof, in the roof, in the roof, and uh, he transpires to be Sharon's son Reggie, who's kind of this wild uh, teenage boy who lives out in the out in the bush, but also in the house and is there and not and. Um, somehow belongs to the land in a different way. Mm. And has made things to help Ruthie, a walking stick, and gives her feet a um, mud bar. So he's really helpful. And and Reggie, this young boy, talks about his mother Sharon in this way. You're the mother you have when you don't have a mother. <laughs> Just pretty hard. And then Sharon sort of talks about Reggie. You're a son who scares me sometimes and a husband 
who scares me worse? <laughs> who is Reggie's father and, and Reggie's, who's Sharon scared? Well, Reggie's father is the most foreboding figure Ooh. in the novel. And he, he grew up there on the farm but was moved off when a part of the land was sold. And his family was shipped up north into the Riverina. Uh, and so during the course of the novel, Walker reappears. And uh, Reggie, though... Um, is kind of the conscious of the novel in a way. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, they, they sort of say, Reggie, or well, Daniel's being told, Reggie thinks this place is half his because his father, Walker, was born here. Mm. So, look, this all comes back to property. And, of course, Daniel's the lawyer, so he mm-hmm. knows about property, mm-hmm. he knows about ownership. But he said something back to Reggie from page 180. He does, and I'm reading from Re- Wedding Bush Road. Reggie may think I'm back because I have to be, but I dream of this place too. The way the sun is rising above the lip of the boundary, ready to eat up the day. The horses grazing, swishing tails, the early morning sparrows prancing along their backs. I'm not just from here, but of here. This place belongs to me, or will. Well, or will, once uh, the the mother and father died, um, early and Ruthie. Now... The land's been passed down from generation to generation. But is infidelity generational too? Well, it certainly appears to be in the novel. It does. Because grandfather, father, and. Daniel returns to the farm having been away for some years and feeling as though he's evolved into something different with this glamorous girlfriend and living up in Laurel Canyon in the Hollywood Hills in this guest house. And so he has a kind of great life over there and feels like he's moved away from what he came from. But when he gets back and is dealing with his ailing mother, who's a real piece of work, and this Sharon woman, and then Reggie, who he's never heard of, uh, he devolves really into who he was when he left. And he finds this Sharon woman vaguely appealing, which is disturbing because it's someone whom he realizes may have been with his father, it looks like. So there's this place, there's this situation where he's becoming who he was and who he's spent his whole life trying not to be, and also becoming maybe his father, which is even for him more alarming. The alarms in my head m- were muted by animal craving. That's a line from the book, and that's exactly what happened to him. And of course, he's. It's not long before the township and his family witness his lust for Sharon. For some, it could be jealousy because, you know, she sort of knows a lot of locals in the town. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But for others, it's resentment. Is Mm -hmm. that what a small town would do for somebody successful who's got away? Well, there is the, the tall poppy syndrome, but it's not just that because Daniel's the one who came from the the big farm and he's the one that went away to school so that there's a strange relationship with the town and the townies and you know Australian country towns like Turidan where I come from they they don't change that much I mean I've been gone for 30 years and Turidan it's a great little fishing village but it's also a funny little town that's very much like it was when I left all those years ago and there are characters there who are similar to the characters and some of the same characters that have always been there so they 
they maraud through the novel as well. So there's this town and country thing, and then this there's the city boy coming back to where he came from in the country. And also the uh, his family, you know, Ruthie's mother's often put distance between the township and herself. Right. Yeah. Like she won't donate a chair to the local charity <laughs> fund. <laughs> oh, golly. It's a lot of fun, this book. Um, and then there's the three large Clydesdales. Mm. Now, where uh, Daniel and Reggie share a bond with these horses, mm. why did you pick great big Clydesdales to put on the farm? Well, they're not actual Clyde's Clydesdales. They're just big, uh, heavy horses. So they're Clydesdale crosses, but they're very substantial horses. And they came from – we had a bunch of horses on the farm that were Clydesdale crosses that I would see in pairs or threes. And I, for some reason, when I'm sitting in my office in Los Angeles at night after I've finished work and I'm writing and looking out over the Pacific and imagining, I, they came through sort of in my dream space into the novel. And they, they're also another conscience of the work and they appear and disappear and really live a life of their own throughout the novel. So there's the, the spirit of Reggie, which is kind of the spirit of the land and the spirit of these horses that also represent the the earth there and then the family who's been there for a few generations but not forever uh, and Walker uh, whose family's been there for a long time but Walker's gone away and come back as has Daniel so that the, all these colliding influences uh, coalesce and things unravel. They sure do. But, <laughs> but before we get off the horses, because I know horses have always been in some of your novels, mm-hmm. Ag- Agapanthus Tango mm-hmm. had a lot of horses. Which is in being re- re-released this year. Oh, I'm well, excited don't you? to say. Yeah. yeah. Um, you, did you ever have horses inside your house <laughs> growing um, up? We, we certainly had. Uh, Always like a hundred and something horses on the farm when I grew up, and my but not in a bedroom. Well, my father once went up to the high country um, running brumbies, and there was a brumby mare that was injured and that had a foal, and she had to be put down. And my father brought this brumby foal back that we sort of bottle fed in the garden, and then it was in the enclosed veranda, and then it would be in the living room in the winter sleeping on the couch in front of the fire. <laughs> this big gangly foal. So there have been horses in the house, and I. But there was a horse in the house one time. I went back recently. It, there was a door open and it came up through the hall and I took photos of it, which in America they thought was pretty odd. Odd, yes. But I suppose you write about that and it just sort of seems so natural. Mm. Then I thought, right, he's done that. Yeah. Well, anyway, back to Daniel. Mm -hmm. Daniel's injured. He's fallen off a ladder. He's concussed into stitches. He wonders how, quote, two old codgers can be looked after by an absent son with lawyer's hands and product in their hair. Mm. And I thought, that's a, <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, that's, a, that's a very good self-analysis of him. But then 2am, you mentioned that the, the, this book takes place over Christmas. Well, 2am on Boxing Day, he gets up because there's the noise. Who's using the shower in the house? Well, very oddly, he goes down the hall and this Walker character is just helping himself to the the shower. A, a bit like Reggie is yeah. up in the roof. So the house is being taken over not just by animals. You know, birds fly down the chimney and Possums. when he arrives there's a possum running along the picture rail. So this walker creature gives him a real fright. And, you know, I must say I did grow up in a house with a lot of rooms and a lot of people coming and going. So it really wasn't so odd for me. But it, it is a little startling in the novel and especially for Daniel. Oh, yeah. 
Well, the whole story takes place over these two weeks and builds to a climax on New Year's Eve. There's the fight over Sharon and the fear of Walker. Reggie is injured and tensions spark events that will change them all. Mm. You know, it. I, I was surprised just how much fear I had for everybody mm-hmm. on New Year's Eve. And it does uh, unfold as, as a suspense novel in a way, even though it wasn't designed as that. And I don't write with any great structure in mind, but that's how the events coalesced and and there's a confluence of, of dramas that emerge at the end uh, and things get quite dramatic. It's true. I won't give too much away. No. <laughs> You've got to read the book to do that. But thank you very much for teaching me about Mortine. I never knew the but breakup of those. There Mortine. you go. Yes. yes. You'll have to read that to find well, yes, out Mortine. Yes, I'm not going oh, to reveal that either. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely not at all. Um, you mentioned Agapanthus Tango being mm-hmm. re-released. Mm-hmm. Well, that book was... Uh, Australia and mm-hmm. in horse racing mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. all around in in the America. US on the East Coast, yeah. But Stray Dog Winter, mm-hmm. golly, I, I still remember that book, and that was a few years ago, set in Russia. That was that was. Oh. That's a scary book too, I must yeah. say. Yeah, that's about a young Australian artist who goes into Cold War Moscow, and weird stuff happens. <laughs> well, that was the last time I spoke with you, and that yeah. was a couple of uh, Melbourne Writers Festivals ago, yeah. where it was the fourth. Most bought book. In that, that, that's yeah, right. In that yes. Festival. Thank you for remembering that. Oh, no. And look, I'm going to sort of say I haven't been stalking you, David Francis, but I did see you over at the Adelaide Writers Festival. I was, yeah. Where you and Carolyn Baum did a swap. Yeah. And Jane Smiley, who's a Pulitzer Prize winner from America, travelled with me, and we went to Perth as well, and went to the down to the Margaret River, and oh. um, Adelaide was amazing. We sold a lot of. Jane and I had about a thousand people in the audience in in Adelaide. It was amazing. Yes, yeah. it, it's a beautiful Wonderful spot, festival, yeah. Absolutely beautiful. Right, well, look, I had the delight to once again speak with David Francis about his book Wedding Bush Road, which sounds nice, but I don't want to live there. Well, I do at time, parts of the year. At parts of the year. And beautiful cover. David spoke about looking over the Pacific Ocean, but sort of in his head he imagines a horse, and that's what's on the cover. Thank you, Jan. Well, our health, our lives are more than ever in the purview of the medical profession. Wayne McCauley's latest novel is a surrealistic pilgrimage through the labyrinthine world of tests and diagnoses. So, Wayne, welcome back to 3CR. Thanks for having me back. Another one, another author who's been here on consecutive occasions. It's tremendous. The Patient, Beth. Mm. presents as someone who is, medically speaking, in rude health, but at the same time she exhibits symptoms with no detectable pathology, slight headache, dizziness, heaviness in the limbs, an overall sense of what we might call unrightness. Now, this begins Beth's journey along a chain of doctors and quacks and oddities, and we never really find out the complaint that she has. No, we don't, and I suppose that's the intriguing conceit of the novel, is that even though Beth jumps through a thousand um, medical, and particularly medical technological hoops, uh, the novel's called Some Tests, uh, and it's more than some that Beth jumps through. Um, No, we don't really ever know what is actually wrong with her. But what led you to explore the medical profession in this way? It's it's more than just the medical profession, but this is how the book... Starts. Mm, what mm. led you to that? I've been, you know, I'm always um, 
I'm a writer who always um, can't help looking outside myself to the society in which I live. And the idea of um, of science and medical advance um, has always intrigued me, actually. I mean, I, I made a theatre show many years ago now, which partly was... Um, Partly was my first sort of investigation of this of this stuff that we, we it was a site specific work that we said in a in an old hospital. Um, so you know, in other words, asking um, I don't write science fiction, but asking questions about um, about where we're going is part of what I is what excites me about writing. So if you think about medical technology and you think about where we are going. And then, obviously, from anyone's personal experience, um, whether it be going to your local GP and your local GP saying, well, look, I'm not quite sure what's wrong. We'll pop you down for a quick X-ray. We might do a little MRI or I'll give you a blood test or something like that. So, in other words, there are multiple varieties now of, of, of ways to begin this, this kind of journey. And, of course, there are, there are multiple, not only multiple tests, but multiple possible treatments. I think this is really interesting territory, and that's what well, I was intrigued about. I'm going to apologise here because I'm going to bring in my own experience, which was down this sort of path mm. where uh, every the knowledge is in the hands of the medical profession. And I was diagnosed, I won't go into the graphic details, with a seven which if it was made up of a three and a four, that was okay. But if it was made up of a four and a three, mm-hmm. and all of this discussion was in a realm I knew nothing about. Well, I think that's the other thing is that is that we, you know, it's almost like a mysterious arcane knowledge now. I mean, there's, they're, they're called specialists for a reason. Um, um, and, 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 and it's, you know, dealing with a language that often we simply don't understand. And, of course, also, and quite, quite rightly... Um, we, you know, as 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 people, as patients, um, uh, put our trust in these people who seem to know better than us. It's a little bit like the old, you know, we trust our politicians, but only. Ha- but how far do we trust something that we really, honestly, don't know about? But Beth doesn't present with any outward symptoms necessarily the unrightness, no. and yet the doctors seem to know. And again, apologies, I didn't feel unwell but the tests coming back were saying otherwise and the only people that could interpret these tests were the medical profession well you know what we're talking about there is a is a huge issue in modern medicine which is this concept of overdiagnosis so um there have been you know i mean prostate cancer is one example that's come up quite quite a lot lately yeah um and that is to say that um there is now you know good medical opinion that it's best not to test for it um, it's best to just uh, leave it leave it alone, um, and that you know clear symptoms will show themselves. And so you know that's just one example of many. Um, the question, and I suppose the, one of the questions the book, book raises is: is at what point do we start to look for unrightnesses or wrongnesses or those kinds of things? And by looking for them, are we not setting out to find them? And given Given the sophistication of science, surely that once we once science sets off on that journey, it won't be satisfied until it does find them. Mm. And also, then Beth is in a dreamlike state. I mean, the novel opens: a garbage truck, a wine, and a thump. Tuesday, she was still half asleep. He'll be here shortly," said David. He kissed her forehead. "I've got to go." The curtains were still drawn. After that, she must have dozed because the next thing, the curtains were open. 
and a different man was standing above her. A stranger, not David. I'm a locum, he said. A long horse-like face with a grey ponytail down his back. So she's in this dreamlike world that she never really leaves in many ways. I think if anyone has experienced that, uh, everyone I'm sure at some point has has experienced illness and the strangeness strangeness that that being a little off-colour or a little unwell or whatever... We, you know, we start to sort of become a little bit internal and we start to become perhaps less part of the world and a little bit isolated. And I think that idea of, particularly when an illness goes on for a while, even if it is just the flu, you know, um, we sort of, we do start to go into a slightly dreamlike or altered state, I think. Um, And so, yeah, my idea was to, my idea was that, because the other thing, of course, that happens here is this, this, Beth, the, the, the principal character really is swept up along into this world of being tested and tested again and 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 feeling that and feeling that if the power is in their hands then I must give I must give myself over to it and there's also that sensation of being out of control of course which is that and weird the world, state as well the world around her is is complicit in this in many ways uh, she has to take a bus to get to the next appointment and she's going through a succession of appointments where she's uh, referred on um, and it almost is a, well it is a surrealistic journey but it's believable uh, at the bus stop at the bottom of the hill half a dozen people were waiting Beth recognised two from the time 291 everyone stood well apart when the 513 pulled up she made her way to the back and set her tote on her lap with Jeff's brown paper bag on top the streets were sparser here and greener than before the bus stopped along the way to pick up new passengers some held referrals some didn't and the empty seats slowly filled and it's like this bus journey is for the ill, and the and the bus driver is uh, letting them know where they've got to go when they get off, and it's believable, but it's also surreal. I I you know my I think all of my all of my work walks that line, and I, I like to I like to think I can walk the line, um, and so too here it's never quite clear I think for the reader at what point Beth's journey slips down the gap, sort of slides into that little gap between reality and non-reality. But, of course, for her, it is reality. Uh, there's no question of that, and I don't think that ever changes for her as a protagonist. Um, but, of course, there is some point where, and, I, and again, going back to sort of real experience, say, of illness, there is some point at which um, you are identified by being ill. In other words, so what happens with Beth is that is that she is surrounded by doctors, specialists and ill people because that's her new reality, you know, and that and that that likewise is, you know, for anyone who's certainly who's who's been ill and say gone through that, jumping through the hoops of specialists and gone to hospital, your life is entirely surrounded by 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 that. Your other life actually disappears. And then there are all sorts of questions and concerns that begin to emerge with uh, this world that you are now into. Um, Costs is one. I see you are a little confused, said Dr. Forster, smiling, but there's no need. You are in good hands. I used to have rooms in Turak and and saw some of the richest and most important people around until I saw the light. My patients had money to pay. They paid me a lot of money, and I paid my greedy landlord in turn. A perfect feedback loop. So why wasn't I happy? And so the money associated with the medical profession and the costs... It's a big question. I mean, it's a monstrous question in, in, you know, worldwide in the United States, obviously, but it's also a big question here. And that is to say, 
um, you know, do we have a two-tiered health system? Since the, since, since the invention of pri- private health insurance um, and, of course, the, you know, the recent attacks on Medicare, you know, how, what, what is the safety net and how many people can it catch and how much is a society prepared to pay? But also, at one point, uh, Beth sort of questions uh, the cost and the, the doctor can reduce his fee because there's what they charge and what they can get away with charging above and beyond. But why do they do that? Is it just for the money sort of thing? Um, and th- so those those costs... Um, just explode. Well, the novel also asks you know big questions about the sort of the fork. Well, Beth enters a you know goes to a fork in the road, um, where if I take the cheaper route, what do I get? And I think one of the interesting things, and not just in not just in the health system, is that is that as um, you know as the sort of welfare state has been progressively dismantled, you know, over the last say you know thirty odd years, and sort of economic rationalism and 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 you know neoconservatism has kind of become the dominant the dominant politic. That that as that has been dismantled, something has to fill its place. And actually, to be honest, what that is is charity, is volunteers. You know, so so what what Beth experiences is almost this alternative health system. Um, where she where she hits the fork in the road, where where um, you know people who aren't paid um, pick up the pieces. Well, you've got yes, the volunteers uh, as a, a an, uh, what an, an underlay in in yeah, some ways, yeah. f- filling out and supporting. Mm. But the other question with costs then is how far do you go? Yeah, of course. We, so of course. I mean, we've had cases in society where okay, you can have these pills, but it's going to cost you ten, twenty thousand yep. dollars a year. But I have a mortgage. I have the kids' futures and the kids' school fees to think about. Do I spend that amount of money on myself? It's an enormous, enormous issue. It's so hard, you know. Like if if we think about it in a personal sense, well, you know, we would we would you know go to hell through hell and high water and find that money, however we could, to to assist our loved one. But you know, if you look out to the biggest sort of societal thing, you know what. What are we creating, you know, and how will we how will we deal this going forward? <clears throat> that is to say, um, there are now there are now cures for things that had no cures be- before. Not only that, there are now diagnosed diseases for which pharmaceutical companies are inventing um, 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 cures that also didn't even exist before. And I think that's probably the bigger issue, which mm. is that there are now lists of so-called medical conditions that simply weren't uh, in the books. 50 years ago. And so they require a cure. So we're getting into this kind of mad cycle where, where um, of course, the costs are going to skyrocket. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of big commercial interests in, in, in those in those costs skyrocket, yeah, skyrocketing, indeed. let's be honest. And, and you've got ComFarm. It's sort of like this uh, great machine of pharmaceuticals. Yeah, well, I took, a, I took you know, I simply took a, a small leaf from, I guess, what's happening, which is, again, that big commercialization of pharmacy, you know. Um, so, yes, in the book, um, Beth ends up, up at a place called Com Farm, which in, which in theory is run, um, you know, by, um, again, by volunteers and servicing the sort of lower end of the lower end of the of the um, of their customers to call them call them that mm. patients um, uh, you know as a, as, a, as again a satirical take on on where pharmacy's going you also bring into question the nature of care we haven't really got time to go into it mm. but there's a mr. Winslow who is an uh, well he can pay the fees he's an obnoxious patient in, a, in an aged care facility and the carer looks after him 
but why if she's being treated badly and then she doesn't care after his death in the, in the sense that no sort of respect for the person same questions of you know of of, of uh, those you know tough moral questions um as as you know of clearly as society ages um and the aged care industry explodes um you know how what's the cost of society in terms of dollars, of course, is argued in Parliament all the time, but also how do we deal with this in an ethical sense? I'm afraid I'm going to have to bring the interview to a close because Ruminations is out the back, but just one thing which I liked. Uh, some things I understand. For example, I seem to have developed a special relationship with the moon that is somehow related to my dead mother. This sort of abstract uh, understanding or appreciation... I've been talking with Wayne McCauley. The book is Some Tests and it's a text publication. It sounded fascinating. I think you did a lot of research for that and scientific stuff and, oh, fascinating. And I spoke with David Francis about Wedding Bush Road. And we'll see everyone we'll next week. We'll see everybody next week. <laughs> 